The Pace Line is sponsored by Health IQ, an insurance company that helps health-conscious people like runners, cyclists, weightlifters, and vegetarians get lower rates on their life insurance rates. Go to healthiq.com forward slash Pace Line to support the show and see if you qualify. And the Pace Line is supported by LAL Cycling. The coast is calling. LAL Shore Collection embodies the spirit and style of the California coast. All LAL products are crafted right here in Southern California for shipment worldwide. Now, on to the show. Hello, Paceliners. Hottie here, applying some fresh lube to this chain. Uh, this is one of the jobs I feel comfortable doing when it comes to working on my own bike. I'm going to talk about wrenching today. What I am willing to do and what I won't do when it comes to putting my bike in the work stand. There's actually a good explanation as to why I have some self-imposed limitations. Fatty takes us down memory lane. He wants us to list our first five road bikes, and he's looking to find out what they say about us. Then from the tarmac to the dirt, Patrick talks with an expert on gravel grinding. He's written a playbook that should get you through your next adventure, ride, or wrecks. Now, I'm going to test shift this bike and wipe down this chain, and you enjoy this edition of the Pace Line. The Pace Line, the podcast on two wheels. Patrick Hotty and Fatty bringing you the single most diverse podcast in America. If by diverse you mean three middle-aged white guys who love bikes. Also, we are the official podcast of RedKitePrayer.com. Find us on RKP, Apple Podcasts, and wherever else you get your podcasts. We're at episode 106 of The Pace Line, and we have a great show today. Hotty, RKP contributor and actual audio professional, what do you think about Icarus getting an Oscar? Oh, man, I was so happy for Brian Fogel and the whole group. First of all, their acceptance speech was fantastic. And that same day, uh, Fatty, I had listened to the interview that you put together with Brian Fogel on the Cycling Tips podcast. So I've got a whole primer on that movie and the story behind that, uh, that uh, documentary. So it was a fabulous interview, and then I turned on the TV and watched the red carpet stuff, and next thing I knew, there's Brian on stage ex- accepting an Oscar. So extremely stoked. It, you know, the whole thing, the interview, the Oscar, the documentary, the Olympic Games, which I had been obsessed with, you know, how Team Russia or the Olympic athletes from Russia, that whole story oh, yeah. kind of came together Sunday night when he was standing up there. So very proud of him. Huge shout-out to those guys. Um, seems like, Fatty, um, the Icarus story is kind of a dot, dot, dot. Like, it it still needs to be wrapped up, doesn't it? He still has some, Oh, yeah. There's still some open openness to that story. Oh, yeah. Grigory, in, uh, the Russian, uh, the former Russian doping boss, you know, he is still in some serious personal jeopardy, and there's still a lot to be told with that. So, yeah, there's still... Still a lot going on. And uh, as you mentioned, uh, real kudos, shout out to Neil Rogers, who did a really great interview uh, for Cycling Tips with that podcast. Um, Patrick. Yeah. Before you say anything today, I just want you to solemnly promise 
you are not going to even mention the word gun in this episode. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I promise. <laughs> it sounded like your mouth was taped shut there for a second. So what have you got going on for us? <laughs> so I talked to my buddy, Nick Legan. Uh, we did a brief interview with him last fall for his new mm-hmm. book, uh, Gravel Cycling. And I've had a chance to read it now, and uh, I wanted to do another talk with him, especially because I've got Bike Monkey's Fish Rock coming up. Uh, very cool. And, uh, you know, Hottie, I got so wrapped up in the whole Icarus oh, thing, right. I forgot to ask you, what are you, uh, what is your poll today? Uh, my poll, how much are you willing to do when it comes to wrenching on your own bikes? Grab your torque wrench, folks. Let's see how good you are. <laughs> What's your aptitude? With those oh, mechanical duties. It is going to be a conversation of shame for me today. I will <laughs> say that much. Ah, and I, of course, am fatty. And in my poll, I'm going to get all nostalgic about my first five road bikes. But before that, Hottie, lead us out. Guys, I am a failed auto mechanic. As a late teen, I just wanted to work. Why spend another four years in school when I could make money now. I wanted a car, I wanted a girl, I wanted a job as a first-rate wrench. I actually landed a position at a small garage in Albany, California, close to Berkeley. It was called Metric Motion. We worked on Toyotas, Hondas, and what they called Datsuns at the time. My <laughs> position was as a mechanic trainee. The first job I was handed as a trainee was to remove and replace a clutch on a Dodge Dart. I know, hardly a Japanese import, but... We took work where we could get it, and a clutch job was good for business. Larry, the owner of Metric Motion, asked me if, if I'd ever done a clutch on a Dodge Dart. I said no, but I also failed to tell him that I'd never done a clutch at all. He gave me the <laughs> basics, and I got to work. Now, uh, we had no hydraulic lifts at Metric Motion, so I had to jack up this Dodge Dart and put it on jack stands, then roll around underneath it to access the drivetrain. The first order of business was to remove the drive shaft. I loosened the bolts at the rear axle, then at the tranny, and then with my face facing the rear end of the transmission, removed the drive line. As it came out, so did all the 90 weight gear oil in the transmission, drenching me in the foul-smelling thick <laughs> lubricant. Larry oh. said, didn't you know you have to drain the transmission first? Guess not. I got cleaned up. Got everything torn down, replaced the clutch, bolted the pressure plate, bell housing, transmission, and driveline back in place, filled the tranny with fresh gear oil, then stared in confusion at the rest of the parts on the ground. <laughs> you see, the Dodge Dart had a three on the tree, and there was this tangle of linkage that connected the column shifter to the tranny that I'd early torn apart and now was laying on the garage floor. I had no idea how it went back together. Again, Larry asked me, didn't you make a drawing of how that linkage was assembled? Uh, luckily, the other mechanic in the shop, a friend of mine, David, was able to bail me out, and the Dodge Dart was eventually on its way. This was just one of a handful of failures I had in my short time at Metric Motion. The breaking point was a carburetor replacement. I stripped the fuel inlet threads. That was it. Larry had to let me go. I went on to take other jobs at shops that had lighter mechanical duties, oil changes, car, uh, radiator flushes, tire repairs, towing, those jobs I could handle. 
But my failure as a full-time auto mechanic has kept me in check when it comes to working on my own bikes. I'm fine with tire changes, new cables, bar tapes, saddle adjustments, even aligning disc brake calipers. But I have a self-imposed limitation. I do not cut carbon. I do not polar press bearings. I do not build wheels. I do not bleed brakes. So my question has to do with how much are you willing to do when it comes to wrenching on your own bikes? Now, Fatty, we know Patrick is going to try and blow us away with his hex key prowess. So let's start with a little humility or humiliation, if you will. How good are you when it comes to bikes in the work stand? What are you capable of doing and what won't you do? Oh, I have humility aplenty on, on this topic. Here's how good I am. I have cut a brake line while trying to snip a zip tie. I've over-tightened a stem clamp to the point where my handlebar cracked. I have futzed about for hours, literally hours, trying to get a saddle at something even approximating the right height, fore aft position, and angle of tilt, only to find that it was pointing way too far to the left. I have dented an aluminum frame while trying to attach it to a bike rack. I have fixed, in quotes, my front suspension in such a way that I have been shot in the chest with my own elastomer stack. I am in basically comfortable (laughs) with doing exactly two things, lubing the chain and inflating the tires. And I've actually got both of these things wrong, too, and have been called out by frustrated bike mechanics for doing so. Mm. And all this used to really bother me. It really did. The thing is, though, I honestly quite literally have a panic reaction when I'm working on bikes. I start sweating. My heart races. I second-guess every quarter turn of the wrench. I get a fight-or-flight reaction. And inevitably, I get it wrong. With age, and I've got plenty of that, has come wisdom. I'm now comfortable with that limitation. And my mechanic is too. He listens to me and has fixed my bikes for about 15 years now and is able to interpret my instructions and sounds and (laughs) he prioritizes my repairs and upgrades. He knows not to tease me about it because it's a sensitive point. Mm -hmm. And I, in return, pay promptly, tip generously, and mention Racer Cycle Service, which is now mobile and will come to your home <laughs> on this podcast whenever I can. <laughs> Thanks, Racer. <laughs> so uh, what's the toolkit look like? Do you have many tools or do you do you keep those at arm's length? I have a few tools. Uh, the I, I was not at all kidding about the cracked uh, handlebar, which I found on a descent. Um, and ever since then have been a lot more careful about, uh, using a torque wrench set properly. I have a few of those. Um, I have hex wrenches. I have the Torx wrenches and I have the things I need to break a chain and and put it back together. Mm -hmm. And I have a really nice pump. Mm -hmm. I have, I have an air compressor, (laughs) so that's. I think that's Ooh. saying that's pretty cool, right? But that mostly that's for tubeless setup. I mean, the thing is beautiful when it comes to setting up tubeless stuff. So I'm very happy to have an air compressor, but I'm also careful even with it because I have blown a tire off a rim before too. So oh, that's that happened. is terrifying. That's all. It's crazy. yeah, it's crazy. Okay, let's get to let's get to His Majesty real quick here, Patrick. <laughs> no need to make us feel inferior. 
So let's just go for what, if anything, you won't do on a bike. And please uh, tell me you've screwed something up. Can we start with humility? Yeah. Uh, right now, as we speak, uh, my allied Alpha All Road is at Breakaway Bikes, basically next door, uh, getting new uh, STI levers installed. Mm. So when that bike was originally delivered to me, Shimano didn't yet have the 9150 levers for that bike. And it took them, whatever, nine months to get them to me. Um, and because I'm not yet comfortable uh, doing a full bleed on hydraulic discs, uh, I took it to them to install. Uh, I did say, you know, all you have to do is get the brakes hooked up and I'll do everything else. Um, that's partly, I mean, I actually like working on bikes and it's partly also I'm a cheapskate, so I don't want them doing any more work that I on the bike than I absolutely need to pay them for. Mm -hmm. um, and also they're a busy shop, you know, so uh, I don't want to take up any more of their time than I need to. So yeah, I'm not yet at a point where I'm truly comfortable bleeding hydraulic brakes hmm. uh, on my own. Uh, I'm not, I'm not as comfortable with uh, truing wheels as I once was. I mean, I used to build a lot of wheels, and so it's one of those things where I know when I'm rusty on something. But I mean, I've got a very full toolkit, uh, kits maybe I should say, because it to keep up with all the tools, it actually requires more than one toolbox at this point. I like working on bikes. Um, and for the most part, I'm pretty comfortable with it. You know, uh, I, I'm recognizing that I do need to augment my toolkit with a few more things. Uh, I don't have enough different tools for bearing press and removal. I've got a lot of tools, but I'm noticing some holes. So, um, yeah, hydraulic brakes. I need hydraulic to get a, okay. I need to get a good bleed kit and then just be willing to run into something, I guess. And there are there are more than one. Depends on what what oh, brake yeah. system you have can make a difference of what bleed kit you need. Um again, not that I know because I don't bleed brakes. I, I guess my hope brakes on my mountain bike I'd feel comfortable doing because it's a very basic, straightforward bleed. I could probably get through that bleed. Um, and there are things that I'm I'm just particular about too, like um, bar tape, for instance. If I have if I do have a bike built, I always tell the wrench, don't wrap the bars. I'll do the bars because I have a way I want to do them. Like sometimes um, on bars that have flat tops, I'll double wrap the hooks to build those up a little bit, and then single wrap the tops. It gives me a more even feel when I go from, this is really quirky. It comes from, uh, it's, it's uh, I know it sounds weird. It comes from golf. It's just the way I used to grip my own golf clubs. I actually used to build golf clubs, Fatty. It's the one thing I did do. I was actually okay. I never hurt anybody. No golf header ever came flying off and hit anybody in the head. So I'm actually decent at that. But I wrap my own, I always tell the wrench, don't, you leave the bar tape off. I'll do the bar tape because I'm a little particular about how that feels. Um, yeah, setting up saddles, doing some of that other stuff. Uh, taping up a set of tubeless wheels. Although I've been struggling with one right now. I have, a, I have a new rim right now that the tape is just not adhering very well to it. So there's some stuff I'll do, but I get around delicate bolts and I feel like things could go sideways on me and get real expensive real fast. <laughs> I'm happy, happy, Fatty, to put things around. To sum up, in my garage, you will not find a saw. You will not find a bearing press. You will find a truing stand, but it collects a lot of dust. Huh, you know, I have a table saw, 
and I have a drill press. I'm very comfortable working with wood. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Uh, it, it is just bikes. Um, it's I, – I know the way wood works. I'm comfortable and feels you – know, I'm very happy working with it. N- nothing fancy. I don't I do not do cabinetry. But uh, I don't know. It's just uh, – and, and furthermore, I didn't even know that a golf club is something that is built up. I just assumed they sort of sh- were shipped to you <laughs> no. the way that they are going to be. No, you can work on I them. I learned something new. Yep, you can work on them. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, you know, Hadi – uh, it's probably for the best that I don't have a lot of bike tools because anytime I'm tempted to use them, I just do damage. Let's move on to my poll drop back. You did a good one here. I want to talk about origin stories. I've been thinking a lot about my origin story lately. And I think most people who ride have a really interesting origin story of their own and you know, how they got started riding and why. And I think those stories are always worth hearing. Maybe next episode, I'll have the three of us go around a room and tell those stories. But today, I'm thinking about hardware. The bikes you pick tell a lot about what your interests are as far as riding goes, and maybe what your early riding trajectory was, and maybe still is. So I'm going to ask you guys to play a little game with me, and I'm going to call it First Five Bikes. And I'm going to constrain this a little further to your first five road bikes today just to give a little extra focus to the conversation. I'll go first. In the 20 years or so that I've been riding, I've actually only owned nine road bikes. And that includes my specialized Shiv T, uh, TT bike and my felt cross bike. So, I mean, I'm, I'm, at, I'm including quite a few things here. Um, I tend to own, ride, and keep my road bikes for a long time. By comparison, I've owned 18 mountain bikes that I can remember, and I'm pretty sure I've left a couple off my list just because of middle-age forgetfulness. So a sentence or two about each of these road bikes will probably take you down your own memory lane and tell you a little bit about me and the way that I ride. My first road bike, number one, was a Bianchi something. I don't remember what it was. Uh I remember it was the cheapest Bianchi road bike. It was in the Celeste Green. It cost around $500 retail, and I bought it strictly to see if I liked road bikes. I had been mountain biking for a couple of years already. I did, and so I only had it for a couple of months, then gave it away, literally gave it, did not sell it, to a neighbor who also wanted to find out if he liked road, road riding. And I bought my Ibis Silk Tie. Back then, Ibis was making titanium road bikes, and this was a beauty. They gave me a good deal on the bike they were showing at Interbike that year. And I rode this bike for about eight years till the down tube separated from the top tube while I was headed downhill on the way to work at around 30 miles per hour. Scary story. (laughs) Ibis, uh, so that was number two. Ibis, uh, I told the story in my blog, uh, found out about it, and generously, Scott Nickel himself uh, reached out to me, gave me a great deal on an Ibis Road Carbon. So that was bike number road bike number three for me. And that replaced the silk tie, and it I still actually own. And it is permanently mounted to my Wahoo Kicker, and I ride it probably during the winter more often than any other bike that I own. I have a, or I should say I had, number four, a Bianchi Pista track bike. 
And I bought this beautiful chrome-plated track fixie when I lived in Sammamish, Washington. And I rode by the Marymore Velodrome, an outside velodrome, every day on my way to work at Microsoft. I thought I was going to take up track. I had watched it, had kind of fallen in love with the idea of it, but then I moved back to Utah before I could take it up. Still, with track gearing and all, this was my commuter with the front brake for a couple of years, and I credit that bike for building up the massive quads that I still have. And finally, number five, my Orbea Orca. Uh, and this one has a little bit of a sad story, but also a story of real generosity. The day I came home from my first wife, Susan's funeral, this orange and black beauty, an Orbea Orca, built up with a still very new and hard to find Dura-Ace Di2 was waiting for me. Dustin Brady, Shimano's marketing guy, put a very bright spot and surprise in what was otherwise a very, very dark day for me. So, my first five road bikes. Hottie, hmm. what were your first five, sure. and what did they say about you? I want The rules here are drop bar bikes. Is that what we're talking about? Well, you know, I'm saying road bikes, so I'm going to let you, like, I'm gonna let you interpret bikes. that. Like, I had a Raleigh as a kid. It was a street bike. It wasn't a dirt bike. I mean, it was the first bike I ever had, and there was a... Not a BMX bike, so that doesn't count, right? So that wouldn't be it. Sure. But the first, I like, guess, I was thinking adult bikes. Yeah. Okay. Well, the first drop bar bike I had was a ten-speed Columbia. My friends all had Schwinn Varsities. I got a Columbia. It was yellow. It uh, took me to the Lafayette Reservoir and back, and on my paper route, it was cool. I love that bike. We all flipped our handlebars up, you know. So instead of drop bar, they were drop <laughs> up. We did that. This thing had the. The top levers, you know, the 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 bonus levers oh, for yeah. the brakes. Oh yeah, and the shifters were at the stem uh, head tube junction there, so you didn't have to bend over or anything. So it was cool. I love that bike. Um, rode it upright. <laughs> I didn't. I never bent over though. I, we rode them upright all the time. It's kind of funny what we did to those things. So I think that yeah, bike I- ended up at the bottom of a pool at Cal State Fullerton. My sister took it to college, <laughs> and uh, some frat boys got a hold of it, and uh, that's where it finally ended up, so the bottom of a pool. Um, <laughs> these I consider street bikes, although you don't pedal them. I had a Honda Hawk CB400T and a Honda CB750F, both motorcycles. Hey, they're bikes. Okay. I thought I'd throw that in there. <laughs> both motorcycles. That's a cheat. Um, they, they represented, though, like a lot of my bikes, independence. I mean, the motorcycle, like my bikes, said, you're independent. You can go do what you want to do. Um, the first serious road bike I ever got was a Specialized Allay. I think this was it. The Specialized Allay Pro Durace with Mavics. Great bike. Um, didn't know what I was doing, but got some advice. And then they said, yeah, get that bike. You'll be happy with it. And was. It was a great bike. Uh, then I got a custom Landshark cross bike. So like you, Fatty, I mean, I'm putting it to drop bar bike. So And I rode it on the road primarily. It was a bike commuter. It, though, ended up in the front fender of a Ford Escape woman cut in front of me on La Brea in Hollywood. And uh, that was that bike. That bike went to, I don't know where, bike heaven. And I went to Cedar sinai Hospital. Um, the Choach, which I still have, rescued from my parents' garage, uh, was a bike that belonged to the boyfriend of one of my sisters. He left it at my folks' place for storage and never came back for it. I have it. I rode it uh, Tuesday. It's now ah. dressed up in 10-speed, down-tube shifters. It's a beaut. I love that thing. Columbus tubing, fabulous. Probably my best riding bike. It feels the best on the road. It's a, it's a lovely machine. Um, 
I got another specialized Allay. This time I went for S-Works. I turned that original Allay Pro into a TT bike. Uh, Deep Bernardi track bike. I could keep going on here, obviously, Fatty. I think you said five. Too many tarmacs to count. I think I've had four <laughs> Roubaix's in my life. Five, including Mrs. Hotties. So, wow. Uh, plenty of machines. Yeah, no question. But it, it's kind of fun the way that uh, your bikes really do become intertwined with your life, don't they? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think and- I think that the underlying theme for a lot of these bikes was I can be... I, I seek the help of others for the purchases for what I'm going to go with. Like the Land Shark, my brother-in-law really helped me with. Like he was very much into steel custom bikes, rode CSIP, raced them, um, cyclocross racing. And he mm-hmm. was a big influence on me as far as equipment in, in the early days. And so I thought, yeah, you know, I think a steel custom bike would be a cool thing to get. I wish I could have kept it. It was a beautiful bike. John Schlott did an excellent job with it, but... Um, and then for a lot of the later models, um, actually Patrick has been one of my influences. I would read asphalt magazine and read a lot of his technical articles on geometry and the needs of current day riders and learn that, you know, maybe the racing bikes can be too racy and maybe there's something, you know, a little gentler that's still going to satisfy me, which is probably why I ended up on a Roubaix for, for a lot of years. Because I, I, I read that, yeah, a little longer head tube, a little lower bottom bracket, a little longer wheelbase is fine. You're still going to be good. The carbon's getting great. The bikes are getting really stiff and good right now. You can get by with more relaxed, more predictable geometry than jumping on one of these race machines and twitching your way down the road. Very cool. It, you know, it's, uh, it, it is interesting to hear the progression and how many you have had so many road bikes comparatively. Well, I didn't, the list could keep going. There's stuff out in the garage. Right oh, yeah. Now. I didn't give me a get to Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I intentionally tried to keep this uh, t- uh, a little bit further back in history. Let's go to your history now, uh, Patrick. Tell us a little bit about your first five road bikes, if you can remember. Oh, I, yeah, I do remember. I don't think I've okay. owned as many bikes as either of you guys, actually. Um, and maybe that's just because, you know, I've reviewed so many bikes. I haven't bought uh, as many as I could have. Hmm. So my first really good road bike uh, was a Specialized Expedition. This was a, a bike made for fully loaded touring. Incredibly long wheelbase. We're talking like 108 centimeters or something. Just a, a super long bike. I once did a 2,000-mile uh, solo unsupported bike tour through the Rockies on it crossed the continental divide seven times. Um, so that was my first good bike. And then a customer of mine at one of the shops that I worked at wanted to sell his nice road bike, a Miele. So this was, uh, an Italian family that had relocated to Canada. And, uh, this bike was made for part of a run of bikes for the 84 Olympics. Um, Campagnolo super record, uh, and I kept that bike for a long time. Um, I don't know, seven, eight years, something like that. Um, and that was, you know, the, that was the bike that I did all of my collegiate racing on and my, my early races when I first got to California. Then I had a CSIP road bike, uh, that was hmm. made for me while I was, uh, at, uh, bicycle guide. Um, so that was my first custom bike. Um, uh, but in short order, another custom bike that I had been sent for review, a Seven Cycles Axiom, 
uh, I got the opportunity to buy it. Uh, and so inside of like six months, I went from never having had a custom bike to having two of them. Um, and then, uh, a short time later, uh, like a year later, uh, prior to the shutdown of bicycle guide, I reviewed a Torelli nitro express. So this was Columbus ELOS tubing. It was, um, shall we say allegedly custom, but it also corresponded to, uh, Torelli's or I should say Mondonico's stock 60 centimeter frame, uh, 60 seat tube, 59 top tube. Mm. It was actually a little too big for me, but Mm. My gosh, that bike rode great. And it was one of those things where I went in thinking, you know, yeah, I'm just going to return this bike at the end of the review. And like two days into riding it, I was like, um, Bill, what is, what, what, what does the check say? (laughs) Um, and, uh, so yeah, those were my first five and I kept, um, the C-SIP I sold when I was trying to get asphalt off the ground. Uh, I sold just about everything that wasn't nailed down, but I kept the seven and the Torelli. The Torelli I sold while I was still in Redondo Beach, maybe four years ago, five years ago. And the seven, I only sold a little over a year ago. Um, it, uh, yeah, maybe two years ago. Uh, mm-hmm. I had it cut in half in 2010 and SNS couplers installed. And it remained my travel bike until I got my, uh, my seven Earhart. Um, so yeah, I, that, that seven Axiom, I estimate I put more than 40,000 miles on that frame. Wow. A lot, a, a big variety in the, uh, between us. Interesting that both of you have a CSIP as, uh, as one of yours. I, yeah. I will say, and this is sort of. Uh, barely random that uh, a CSIP was actually one of the first bikes that I gave away as a uh, as an incentive in one of my fundraisers. So you know the guys there uh, obviously really good, make amazing bikes. So you know shout out to them. That that needs to be said. And with that, uh, I'm going to say that that was a pretty cool conversation. I think we might continue it on the mountain bike side next week for my poll. For now, though, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to have an interview with a gravel guru here on the Pace Line. As the rear derailleur shifts, notice the chain to inner cage gap gets smaller and smaller. Again, we will be turning the L-limit screw to adjust this gap, making it as small as possible without chain rub. Health IQ uses science and data to secure lower rates on life insurance for cyclists. They do this by qualifying endurance athletes through quizzes that demonstrate their knowledge of and adherence to a healthy lifestyle. Health IQ follows applicants all the way through the process from when they submit interests to starting applications, from going through underwriting to policy in force. The policy is underwritten by one of our top partners, an insurer. Health IQ's underwriting advantages include family history, reducing your chance of being penalized for adverse family health history if you are otherwise healthy, low resting heart rate. Most carriers will penalize people if their heart rate is too low. We help them recognize 
that this is a sign of your excellent health and fitness. The Health IQ Advantage is their unique mortality model on the health conscious, and they have lower rates for health conscious people, just like a good driver gets savings on auto insurance. And they have unique underwriting calculations that replace BMI with waist-to-hip ratio and more. To see if you qualify, get your free quote today at healthiq.com forward slash paceline. And the Paceline is back with Hottie and me having taken our polls. Now it's Patrick's turn. Yeah, so guys, this weekend I'm doing Bike Monkey's first gravel event of the season, Fish Rock. It's up in Mendocino County. I haven't, of the many Bike Monkey events I've done, I haven't done Fish Rock before. So I'm trying to figure out how to choose everything from which bike of mine to how low a gear I need to what tires to choose. And I'm getting input from all directions. And I figured, uh, you know, kind of in line with uh, Hottie's recent conversation with Neil Shirley, I wanted to call up my friend Nick Legan and talk to him about his book, Gravel Cycling, which I went back to consult. So here's Nick Legan with Gravel Cycling. Well, hey, Nick, it's great to have you on the pace line. Uh, Thanks for having me. Uh, I've been spending some time uh, with your book, um, why don't you tell the listeners, uh, the title and what it purports to do? Sure. Uh, my book is called gravel cycling, the complete guide to gravel racing and adventure bike packing. Um, and I hope it does a few things. Um, one, it's, it's a bit of a, a love note from me to, uh, mixed surface riding to gravel racing, to bike packing. Um, and then I also hope it serves as, as a source of inspiration and, um, and then gives people a leg up on actually going out and, and giving one of those events or one of those routes a try for themselves. Very cool. So I was having a conversation with somebody recently, and actually I think I've had this conversation three or four times now. You know, when you're a triathlete, you're not really a triathlete until someone has colored on your arm with a Sharpie, you know, and put a number <laughs> on there. You, you know, you can swim all you want, you can run all you want, you can ride a time trial bike all you want, but you're not really a triathlete, you know, until you've done one. Um, sure. It strikes me that for the first time, cycling has something roughly equivalent to doing marathons or triathlons where, yeah, you can buy a gravel bike and you can ride it around and everything, but people generally seem to buy these bikes to go do events. And one of the things that I really love about your book is a big focus of it is on these really notable events around the country. That shot from Stillwater, the the red clay. Um, right. I saw that. Land run like, 100. I was like, okay, red clay. All right, now I got to do it. So yeah. The, the color photography in the book is really evocative. Being a Sonoma County boy now, I was, I was pretty, uh, pretty thrilled to see that you included some information about the grasshoppers in there. Uh, yeah, I, I tried to get a good mix of events from all over, um, well, to be honest, the world, but certainly all over North America as well. Yeah. Now, one of the other things that the book does is it talks a lot about equipment choice and how to think through equipment choices. I'd like to hear a little bit more just, you know, from you in person now about your philosophy on that. That's a really, really good question. Um, one way is, is, and I do this in the book, is by event. Um, I think most of us are aware that, you know, different tires, different gearing uh, choices need to be made for different races. Um, and then beyond that, 
um, we all have our strengths and weaknesses. Some people like to spin a smaller gear. Some people mash all day long. Um, I think that it is highly personal. Um, I think that you should buy my book and get a leg up on a lot of those events. But instead of being self-serving, I think the, the way to approach it is to talk to locals if you don't know the area. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's really, really helpful. Social media makes it really easy, and so does email. It, most promoters are more than happy to, to talk to you about that. Um, even if Miguel Crawford is, is intentionally cagey about some of those decisions. Um, <laughs> uh, but I appreciate that too. I like the idea. I mean, part of adventure is showing up with the wrong gear. You know, yeah. um, you have a safety net, so you're not going to get in any real trouble, but you might not just blitz through everything as smoothly as you would have liked to. But I, I think that's part of it too, is just go do it. Some of it is just going to be experience-based. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a lot of the fun for me. Uh, I'm certainly a gear guy. And, and just getting in over your head is kind of fun sometimes. And that's, that's what's interesting to me about gravel is, is that there is so much to learn. And that, that knowledge is very regional in nature. Yeah. Well, I mean, I just think about how rocky our dirt roads are, you know, here in Sonoma County. Then I look at that picture from Land Run. And, yeah. you know, I've, I've dealt with red clay, you know. And it's like right now I just don't – of the tires that I have, I just don't even know what I would choose. You know? Well, I'll tell you. So I'm I'm heading to Land Run next week, and I'm going to be running 33 millimeter tires, which is significantly narrower than I normally run. I'm a big fan of 40s. I know mm-hmm. that you run 40s uh, yep. quite often. Um, I'm running single speed there because that red clay just trashes uh, drivetrains, and I like racing some single speed. Um, but having extra mud clearance there uh, is it is a big leg up, and and thankfully their their roads are not. Of course, I'm going to have a puncture now that I say this, but they don't they don't typically um, have a lot of punctures there. It's not big, rocky roads right. like you just described or, or like you find at Dirty Kansas, for instance. Yeah. And that is one of the one of the really interesting things that I find. Now, a, another big chunk of your book is all about bike packing. What is it? I get the appeal of bike packing. I've done some. Why is it that it has meshed so nicely with gravel riding, do you think? Well, I think gravel riding become it is very much a gateway drug. Um, I've been giving a talk <laughs> lately about gravel as a gateway drug to bikepacking. It's how I discovered bikepacking. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that there's a few things going on there. One, I think it's becoming increasingly clear. And, I, and I, I'll preface this by saying that I grew up as a roadie. Um, I got into mountain biking a little bit later. But I, and I love riding on tarmac. And there's nothing better than, than you know, a paved goat track narrow road up in the mountains to me but i think that what gravel riders are and bike packers are figuring out is that the roads that are the most pleasant to ride a bicycle on are not paved they're dirt or gravel or some variation on that and when you start realizing that the there are big big networks of these roads um, all over the world this is not um, unique to to north america that it's it's really fun to try to piece those together and as soon as you dabble in uh, long distance events, you know, it's routine to talk about 100 mile rides for gravel and longer. The idea of like, well, what if I just kind of kept going is a really natural thought. It's a really natural progression. So they have grown up. Um, the upswell has kind of gone hand in hand between gravel and bikepacking. And it's also because even if you're just doing single day events, the bags that are made for bikepacking are really handy, you know, whether mm-hmm. that's a top two bag for snacks or a larger seat pack that's waterproof to carry all your clothes and repair items. Um, so, you know, people are using bikepacking gear for single day events or even just commuting. And then they're kind of like, well, what if I just, you know, what if I threw a tent up front 
and or, or not even some some people are putting together you know like uh, hut trips or they're hitting B&Bs or the, the yep. touring uh, movement is actually growing as well because yeah. these bike these bike packing bags are making it easy to go touring on the bike you already have very cool. So why don't you tell the listeners uh, some about your assistance with your wife and her coaching business and the uh, the equipment advising that you're doing? Oh, thanks. Yeah, I'd love to. Um, so I have a personal blog that I rarely contribute to called Rambler. That's R-A-M-B-L-E-U-R.com. And um, we saw a hole in the in kind of the market, the, the coaching world um, when it came to gravel specific advice, I've raced dirty cans of five times. She's raced dirty cans on several occasions and been on the women's podium twice. And she has a background in coaching. So we said, let's start a coaching business. So we've called it Rambler Rising. Uh, you can find information on, on the blog. Um, we're the official coaching of the dirty Kanza 200, 100. And I've been helping out with that in helping riders pick out and select gear. So we, we, I do a consultation, we do some questions via email, and then we do a pretty lengthy phone call and talk about where they're coming from. You know, for instance, one of our clients is more of a mountain biker, so that, that um, plays into the advice that we give him for his, for his gravel bike. And it's been really fun to, to help these people. Essentially, we're, we're just trying to get people across the finish line you know, and set reasonable expectations and, uh, and then help them execute. But it's been really, really cool. It's in its first year, so it's very much, very much an experiment, but I only see uh, big things ahead. Yeah. Well, I mean, of, of all the areas of cycling where I think a certain amount of coaching could benefit pretty uniformly everyone, I see gravel as one, just because, you know, as a movement, it's still so new. So I'm, I'm psyched to hear that you guys are doing this. Yeah. No, it's been really fun so far. Excellent. Well, Nick, thanks so much for taking time to join us on the Pace Line. Appreciate it. Have a good one. So that was Nick Legan, author of the book Gravel Cycling with Velo Press. Uh, so guys, the question I have for you is, you know, if you're doing a gravel event that's new to you, how are you going about choosing which bike, what gearing, what tires? Eldon? I, I, sure, I'll go first. <laughs> um this kind of circles back to the question that Hottie was asking, which is, you know, about uh, a little bit about how much wrenching are you willing to do? And since my answer is more or less none, I, I've turned that into my philosophy for bike usage in general. That is, I'm of the build one thing for everything school. I only have one set of wheels for each bike I own. I don't have different wheels for this kind of dirt and that kind of dirt or, you know, for it cross country versus uh buff or, or you know for buff single track versus rock gardens i have one one set of wheels i have one pair of tires i put them on and they stay on until they're worn out if a bike can handle hundreds of training rides it can handle race day uh so i don't introduce new equipment um it's if I do that for race day, it's an invitation for surprises that I don't know how to fix. So I don't. <laughs> so anytime I have my mechanic spending time on my bike before a race, it's on tuning my existing setup. So I am I'm very simple just because I have to acknowledge my own limitations. Hmm. Okay. Interesting. What about you, Hottie? Well, first of all, I love Nick's spirit. And I, I took two things away from that conversation, Patrick. First uh, there's nothing like diving in. There's nothing like that. I love his spirit of adventure, the unknown. There's a lot of actually joy in that. I get a lot out of that too. Like you go into these gravel events, you haven't done it before. 
They're a little nervous. Did I get it right? The unknown is kind of cool. That said, he's there's there's the second half of what Nick said, and that is when you invest the kind of time and effort and planning into something like DK or even something like Old Casadero, you make a road trip to go up to these events, you want to get it right. Like you don't want to go up there and slide all yeah. over the course or puncture eight times or not finish, God forbid, or have a chain snap or whatever. So there's something to be said for both. The unknown is cool, yet you want to you wanna get the ride done too as well. Now for me, uh, I don't mind uh, tinkering and learning and, and changing my bike setup a little bit. Usually it involves stuff I already have. Like I won't purposely go out and spend blow a lot of money on some tires I haven't ridden before. So I'm fine reading up uh, uh, race reports, uh, talking to or reading what the organizer has to say, whether they're being cagey or not, and trying to put together a little equipment plan. Um, and again, usually it involves stuff I already have in my garage. I can change tires. I think tire pressure is the big bugaboo. That's the one that's, that's difficult to get right. Um, but again, you overinflate your tires a little bit. You get on the course. If they're a little too firm, you let them out, and, and you're good to go. So um, I'm good with changing stuff. I love I love trying to decode some of these adventure races. To me, it's it's a third of what makes them so great. Very cool. Yeah, well, um, it's good to get that feedback, and uh, I think I'm going to be spending some time in the garage tonight. <laughs> Good luck. Don't panic. That's my advice. <laughs> right, right. All right. It, it is time for us now to get to the Paceline Picks where we talk about more or less anything we want to talk about, usually bike-related. And I'm going to kick off today. And I my pick is the fact that I am a complete fool for the Silka Super Pista Ultimate Pump. And I know that I'm not the only one in this podcast who is – it's the fact is it's an actual pleasure to use it. And one of the things I love about this pump is, and I'm talking about my personal one here is the hero H I R O side lever locking chuck. It is perfect. You drop it over the valve, you pinch it and it has grabbed and sealed simply securely and perfectly. And I got an email earlier this week saying it is now more affordable. It used to be a very expensive chuck to get, Basilica's taken the hero, figured out how to mass produce it, and is making it standard now on the Super Pista Ultimate, which means if you haven't got one before, you got another reason to think about it. It used to be an expensive upgrade. Now it's a little cheaper to buy if you haven't got one. $65 still may seem like a lot of money, but if you have a Super Pista or Super Pista Ultimate, this upgrade is worth it. I, I got to ask Hottie. Hmm. Patrick, have you used the Hero Chuck? Can I get an amen on this? Amen. I have not, but I've been spending a lot of time on the Silka website giving my wife hints about what she might be able to get me for an upcoming uh, birthday. I I would say, yeah, Super Pista Ultimate, which now comes with a, he, uh, with a Hero standard, uh, it makes it fun and sort of pleasurable to just go out and inflate a tire. <laughs> And I am not exaggerating even a little bit. Okay, enough of my pick. Patrick, what do you got? Well, I'm giving my pick to Nick's book, Gravel Cycling. I've been spending more time with it lately, and truly one of my favorite parts of the book is the color photography. 
Um, you guys know I'm the author of two books that feature photography, and I know how hard it is to get a publisher to spend the extra dough on running color photographs. It's not easy to sell that idea. Uh, and this book is one occasion where it really pays off. Uh, when I was at Dirty Kansas last year, I got introduced to Bobby Wintle, who's the organizer of Oklahoma's uh, Land Run. And I mean, yeah, I liked him immediately. He's a really nice guy. Uh, and I wanted to do the event just because I liked him and, and love the idea of doing gravel events. But now that I've seen pictures from the event, thanks to next book, it's like, oh my gosh, I gotta go do this. I have no idea how I would get through it. Uh, I have no idea how to prepare for it, but I want to do it. Um, and so, you know, if you are interested in, in exploring what other events are out there and the possibility of doing them, this book is a great place to start. All right. Great pick. Book's almost always a great pick. Hadi, what do you got? A bike ride is a beautiful thing, guys. You're rolling along, enjoying the company and the scenery. Your mind is free from all of life's frustrations when suddenly... The serenity is disrupted. Now, your bladder has taken over your thoughts. For us guys, this is not a huge deal. Find a semi-private spot, yank down the front of those shorts, or roll up a leg, and let go. But imagine for a second you are a woman wearing bibs. How do you get it done? At great risk from the Me Too movement, my paceline pick will center on this dilemma for women. But I get some help. And she spoke to me about a unique product that helps get the job done in a timely fashion. Hello, Paceliners. Hottie here, Michael Houghton. Uh, we are at the end of a, a great ride put on by Velocio. And I hope I'm saying that right, because evidently there's a, quite an argument going on. How do you say this particular clothing brand? Anyhow, that's another story. We did a great gravel ride today with the folks from Velocio. And along the ride today was... Laura King, who's the marketing and sales director for Velocio. And I, no offense, uh, first of all, she's married to Ted King. You may know him. He used to be a racer guy. So I don't want to offend Ted or anything, but I did notice Laura's shorts and the back of her shorts was a zipper. Now I'm going to go out on a limb here and pick something this week that I have no business picking, that I have no experience with, and that is women's bib shorts. But this is a cool design, and I think it's worth noting. So Laura is with me here because she wears the Velocio short with a zipper in the back. And she's going to explain to us what the zipper in the back is all about. First of all, what do you call this short and, and how does it work? We call it, um, well, we call the zipper the fly. And the fly is available on a few different pairs of our bibs. So whether it's a signature fly or we have a pair of bibs called the Lux, the fly is a feature available actually from... Um, any bib we make, whether it's a long tight or a three-quarter length or a regular bib. And, I mean, our company uh, from the beginning has been about designing equally for men and women, which is kind of unique in cycling apparel. Um, and not just designing equally, but designing specifically for, you know, what is what does a female need in a bib short? Um, and, and a female needs to go to the bathroom in the bib short once in a while, and this thing kind of solves that issue? It does. So, you know, gone are the days where we have to un completely undress and, the, you know, you're out in the cold and you have to take your jersey off or you're in a porta potty and you find yourself having to put your kit, your clean kit on the floor, which is just disgusting. And now all you do is um, 
the zipper is, you know, three inches long. It's covered. You don't feel it. It's in the back of your bibs, and you just zip it down, and you do a little squat, and your shorts stretch over your hips, and you do your business, and you're done as quickly as the men, which is really, um, you know, you're in a race situation or you're in a group ride, and um, it's pretty annoying to not be able to go to the bathroom as quickly. So officially the zipper is called what? It has an official name? It's called fl the fly. The fly um, okay. Our tagline is fly further. Um, you're faster, you're more efficient, you're comfortable, more comfortable. Now I can tell you as a man, here's where I can step in. Look, <laughs> there are times when a man has to totally derobe and I think I, you know what I'm talking about here. So why not do this for a man too? Because hey, we get caught in the same situation at times. Well, funny you mention it because our designer just asked my husband a few days ago uh, if he could, you know, redesign his own bib short, what feature might it have. And he said, I'm really jealous uh, that my wife has a zipper. <laughs> um, so, you know, you know, you never know. He, he might need to, we could maybe call it the Dumoulin or something. But Tom Dumoulin, who famously had to pull over during the Giro, and do, but he had to take off the pink jersey, and this could have saved him <laughs> it really precious could. seconds. Yeah, he just needed a fly. The fly. <laughs> well, that's it, folks. That's it, Paceliners. My Paceline pick, again, something I know nothing about, which is what women go through when they have to use the restroom. Here's an answer. It's the Velocio bib and their signature fly or the fly zipper. Laura, thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> Again, that was Laura King of Olochio talking about their fabulous women's bib short with the backside fly. Really, check this thing out and buy a pair if you have a lady in your life that rides. There's also a cool video on the site that compares the time it takes a lady with and without the fly bib short uh, <laughs> to do their business, as Laura would say. It's a lot of fun. Look, I, I didn't have to push her into this. She didn't feel... This is something they want to promote. It's an idea they have. They think it's a it's a, another way to get, obviously, more women riding because this is one of those barriers. Like women, like, well, like their shorts are a pain. They're a pain. I, I can't go to the bathroom on those things, right? And Velocio has put some real thought into this by putting the, this. this did, did you guys get understand, based on her description, of how it works? The fly's in the back on the back sides of the shorts, and it opens up enough for them, allow them to essentially drop their shorts so they can go to the bathroom. Um, yeah. it, it works quite well. Check them out. It's on their website. Velocio.cc is, the, is their website address. We'll put a link on RKP too. So that's my pick. Lady shorts. All right. The Hammer's birthday is coming up in April. I have an idea of what I might be getting her. Awesome. You know, she races a lot and this is something that matters on some of those big endurance races. So very cool. Patrick, what is coming up on redkiteprayer.com? Well, we still have a few more posts regarding NABs. I've been doing individual posts uh, on the finalists and eventual winner of each of the different categories. And the finish line is in sight, finally. <laughs> the question on everybody's mind is, will you finish the post before next year's NABs? <laughs> <That's right. laughs> I we're, hope. <laughs> we're going to be deep in NAB debt soon. And I believe that is the show, guys. One last reminder for our listeners, find us on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else and take a moment to rate and review us. It helps other people find the pace line. For Hadi and Patrick, I'm Fatty. Thanks for listening to episode 106 of The Pace Line. It's like, oh my gosh, I, did, I have no idea what's going on. Yeah.